uh, that I've called uh, Mega Church. And the way a series works for me is I pick a topic and I talk about it week after week after week after week and I talk over and over again until you're tired of hearing and wondering when it's going to end. Well, I've been in this series since the first part of November. This is part three. And the reason I wanted to talk about this topic is because We've been talking a lot in 2014 among our leadership circles and with a lot of you about the future of the church, the long-term future of faith community, the future of the church in Ellsworth, and what's happening in the church in America and around the world. We've having a lot of these conversations. And then last month, uh, we spent a weekend with our friend, uh, Pastor Buckingham, Laura Buckingham. You remember him being here back in the middle of November. He spent the weekend talking with our current leaders and with potential leaders, uh, talking about the future and talking about the mission of the church. And the reason I'm calling this series Mega Church is not because we have a mega church, which uh, technically is a congregation of uh, over 2,000. And I don't know if any of you have ever been in a mega church or been a part of a mega church. I'm not pro or against. They're just they just are. But that's that's the technical. De- We've got a ways to go. So. Uh, by that definition, because we don't even, I, sometimes I feel like we don't even have a big church, although according to a lot, most recent studies, maybe we are a big church. Um, you know, nearly 60% of churches draw under 100 people on an average Sunday. 60% draw under 100 people on an average Sunday. Another 35% draw 100 to 500. So 94% of churches in America are under 500 on a given Sunday, with the vast majority of those drawing under 100. So with our congregation of a couple hundred, that's not what we draw on average attendance, about 160. By that standard, then maybe we are a big church. Maybe we ought to start thinking that way. Anyway, that's really not what this is about. We're not talking about numbers in this series. We're calling this mega church because the church is a big deal. It really is a big deal. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about church, You may think of the bruises you have because your mom would pinch you during church just to keep you awake or to keep you from, you know, quit poking your sister or something. Maybe church to you is growing up watching your neighbors leave the house on Sunday morning all dressed up and wondering why they would do this every Sunday morning. Maybe church has been a bad experience and you can't even believe that you're here this morning and you really would rather not talk about that. Maybe you're like me and you grew up in church and you've always loved the church. But for the most part, to most of us, church is a Sunday event. The classrooms and flannel graph and choir music and sitting through long lectures and what's that musty smell and counting ceiling tiles, you know, or panels in the stained glass. About 722 in this room, you don't have to count, I've counted for you. If you grew up in church, there are all kinds of insider weirdness, all kinds of insider weirdness. We acknowledge that and we own it. We're guilty as charged. And if you grew up as a pastor's kid, like a few of us did, you got your own set of issues, and I can only pray for my kids who are... Pastors, kids, kids, pastors, kids, kids of pastors, I don't know. I don't know why I can't figure it out anymore. The challenge is to see the church, to view the church as it first began. Because it didn't begin as a building, didn't begin as an institution, didn't begin with a hierarchy. The church began as a movement. And 2,000 years ago, about 100 people flooded the streets of ancient Jerusalem. And they had this unique message that they were rallying around. And they rallied around a name. And today, in fact, we open the scripture and we're going to see that it's all about this name. And the thing that launched the church wasn't the teachings of Jesus, it was an event. And maybe you're not really a church person or this is new to you or you've been here a few weeks now and you're still a little bit skeptical or you have, and you have many reasons to be. Just understand this. The foundation of the church is not the teachings of Jesus. 
the foundation of the church is not even the activities of Jesus. It's one single event. The event that they couldn't stop talking about was the resurrection of Jesus. And everywhere these followers of Jesus went, they talked about the resurrection. And they said, you know, Jesus, who was crucified right over there, you know. He, he, Jesus, who just a couple months ago, he rose from the dead, like right over there. And suddenly there was all this activity and all this energy around this thing that they were calling the local church. The church was a movement, and it's always been a movement. And there's always been a group of people who understood that, who've understood that it's not about hierarchy, it's not about tradition, it's not about liturgy, it's not about denominational distinctives, it's not about buildings and style and who's in charge. There's always been a group of people who understood that this is about a message, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was crucified, He rose from the dead, and He came for the whole world to show that He was the solution to our sin issue. He came as the answer to the question about what to do with this gap between us and God. And he came to bring us forgiveness of sin. And these first century Jewish people flooded the streets of Jerusalem to say, he's risen from the dead. He's validated his message. Now we can have peace with God. And on the first day when the church was born, 3,000 people embraced that message and became followers of Jesus. 3,000 baptisms on that day. A couple of weeks later, 2,000 more. By the time Luke, the story picks up where we're going to be today, Luke says 5,000 men had embraced the message of Jesus Christ. Chances are these men plus their households, over 10% of the population of Jerusalem. So now it's a movement. Now it's gaining traction. It has nothing to do with buildings, has nothing to do with hierarchy, has nothing to do with personalities, has nothing to do with programming. It has everything to do with this message that just down the street and around the corner, a man was crucified and down that road outside the city, he rose from the dead. Oh, and this happened just a couple months ago. Hey, and we're eyewitnesses. The problem was in the first century in the city of Jerusalem, there was a very, very sensitive and somewhat tenuous balance of power between Rome and the Jewish authorities that ran the temple. The temple was the epicenter of Jewish life and culture. And there was this balance of power that the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities tried to keep intact because it allowed there to be peace. And suddenly, kind of out of nowhere, this peace was disrupted by all this talk about Jesus and this brand new movement and that no one saw it coming. And as a result, there was resistance. And then there was persecution. And two of the church's first leaders, Peter and John, were arrested. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. They spent the night in jail. They were told by the Jewish authorities to quit talking about the resurrection. Quit talking about this name. And Peter and John, after spending the night in jail, went back and huddled with the believers. And we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, too. And, and instead of hunkering down and saying, you know, okay, we've got to tone it down a bit. Wait, okay, we might have come on a little bit too strong. Let's not talk about the R word. Let's not talk about the J name. Maybe we could just talk about prayer. Uh, maybe we could talk about some of the cool stuff that Jesus taught. Because he, he taught some crazy stuff. Let's talk about that. No, instead of doing that, they got together after spending the night in jail and they prayed the first recorded prayer in the history of the local church. Remember what they prayed? They prayed, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great, what's the word, remember? Boldness. Let's say that again, with great boldness. And a couple weeks ago we said, time out. Time out, guys. Boldness is what got you in trouble in the first place. I mean, you still smell like jail, for crying out loud. Now you're praying for more boldness. And they went on from there. This is in Acts 4, 29 and 30, this prayer that they prayed. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And they went back out into the streets, and they continued to preach, knowing that they were going to get themselves in troubles, but they just couldn't be quiet. 
So a couple weeks ago in part two, we, uh, we all stood. If you weren't here, you, you missed a good one. Uh, we did something really awkward for some of us. Uh, wasn't that awkward? You remember that? When uh, we were felt manipulated a little bit, and we told you what to do and what to say. and how. You remember that? Yeah, and you hate that, so do I. But we all stood, and we, we never do this, and we prayed this prayer out loud, and we prayed for boldness. <clears throat> this is a little bit strange to me. We live in one of, if not the safest nation in the whole world. Most of us live in the safest parts of the safest nation in the whole world. And we're still scared. We're still worried. Everybody's got to have a helmet and a seatbelt, and you can never have too much insurance. You know what I mean? That mindset and that kind of thinking creeps into our Christianity, and consequently, we're not bold. We think we're oppressed and persecuted. We're so overly sensitive. If you're not a church person, this is a great week for you to be here because you're going to think, if you think the church is full of hypocrites, we're going to confirm your suspicions in just a minute. Honestly, we are just so worried. There are Christians all over the world that if they heard any of our prayers, they would just laugh or maybe throw up. When American Christians pray, God, help us have a safe day, help us have a safe trip, you know, I think Christians in dozens of countries around the world are like, you know, have you seen our highways? You're praying for a safe trip. Have you seen what we drive and what we drive on? We don't even have seatbelts. In fact, we don't even have seats in the back of this remnant of a truck, you know. Oh, and God, help me get through school. Oh, your kids get to go to school. How That's awesome. God, bless me, help me, protect me. There are Christians in other parts of the world that if they heard us Americans pray, God, bless me, help me, protect me, they'd be like, bless me? You don't have enough already? You have money in your cup holders. You don't even know where to keep all your money. The money on the floor of your car would feed our family today. And you're praying, Lord, bless me? I know I'm laying on a little thick. But I'll tell you, when you step way back and you look at the church worldwide and then you focus in on us, it's kind of pathetic. And with all the safety and protections and freedoms, we're still praying these little anemic prayers of bless me, help me, protect me. And I think the rest of the Christians and the rest of the world look at us and they're like, really? You want more? And this seeps into our thinking as Christians. And of, of all the Christians in all the world who have the least to fear about being bold in their faith, it's us. And we are some of the least bold believers in all the world. Sometimes, sometimes, honestly, I wonder how God takes any of my prayers seriously. The point is this. We've allowed our fear to erode our boldness. The things that you're afraid might happen, well, what if they don't like me? What if they talk about me? What if I'm not popular? What if I suffer? If you were, I tell you, if we were to verbalize some of that in some parts of the world... Christians, I think, would wonder if we're even talking about the same thing. They might laugh at us because we've lost. We've completely lost our boldness. So there was a time when the local church was about one simple thing. The church was all about the truth that everyone lives forever somewhere. And God has sent us the answer to that dilemma. That everyone lives forever somewhere. And God, through Jesus, has brought assurance to that dilemma. There was a time when the local church was completely open-handed. The last thing they worried about was themselves. They were just so concerned about the people around them. There was a time that the local church was saturated by a kind of love, that the people outside the church looked at them in awe. 
They looked at them in awe because of the way they treated one another and the way they treated outsiders and their response to persecution and their response to rejection. And the outside world, world looked at them and they had favor in their community. They had favor in their culture because there was something just so unusual about them. I, th- I think we've lost that. And part of the reason maybe that we've lost that is because we're so blessed, for lack of a better word. Now listen, you should never feel guilty for blessing, okay? But you should be responsible with the blessing. You should always feel responsible. We should always be responsible. If you've been blessed, it's not for your sake. If you've been, you've been blessed in order to be a blessing to someone else. So this morning as we continue to study what happened in the first church, we've we got to ramp up our boldness a bit, or quite a bit, because, you know, we're too afraid, and, and we have nothing, nothing to be afraid of. That was all editorial. Let me get to this story. This is such a great story. Um, it's history. Luke, who was a doctor, interviewed eyewitnesses and put together an account of what happened in the early church. And here's what he has to say. But here's what I want to do. I've been showing this video to set up my teaching each week, and I forgot to do that. And I'd like to do that because I really need a drink. So if we could show that, Scott, that'd be great. Oh, there's that one, and then there's one after that that we'll find eventually. I, it's my fault because I, I didn't follow the instructions. What is church? Is it a building? With some pews? A piano? And stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of healthcare in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children, creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. And it's made up of people like me and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus to help a world that needs him so desperately. Welcome. 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 Welcome to church. Thank you. So, so here's what happened. Peter and Paul get arrested. This is in Acts 4 and 5. Peter and Paul get arrested. They get out of jail. They come out and gather with about 120 other followers of Jesus. They pray for boldness, and then they go out on the street. 
and they keep preaching the message of Jesus. They keep preaching the message of the resurrection. And more and more and more people embrace this message. And word gets outside of Jerusalem that something big is going on. And hundreds of people from the surrounding communities begin to flock to Jerusalem. And they bring in their sick and their lame and their blind because they've heard rumors that there's a group of people that can lay their hands on the sick and they'll be healed. Now, that was happening. But the point of the healing was not so that these people would be healed because every single person who was healed eventually died, right? I mean, you don't meet people from the first century, you know, going, oh, Peter and John, they laid hands on me and I was healed, now I can't die. So this was a temporary sign that God was up to something unusual. The city of Jerusalem, there's, that's already full of guests because of the Jewish festival of, Pas- of uh, Pentecost, now there's even more people. And here's what happened. The religious leaders who are trying to manage this delicate balance of power between, uh, you know, Rome lets us do this, but if we do too much, Rome's going to come in and squash us. They're trying to manage this delicate ba- balance of power. And these are experts in the law, and they're experts in religion, and suddenly no one's showing up for their religious worship services. Suddenly, there are empty seats in the temple where the seats used to be full. Suddenly, they're losing some influence. They're saying, you know, how come no one's coming to our services anymore? Well, you know, Peter healed my grandma, and John healed my son, and it's amazing, and they're not very good speakers. I don't think they went to school, but all you ever did was read us the prophets, and we don't know what you're talking about, so we just kind of went to this show because it was pretty cool. I just made all that up, but there's this disruption, and Luke tells us that the religious leaders became jealous I can't imagine that. Because the people love these guys, and the followers of Jesus love them. There are miracles going on, and they become jealous. And now they send the temple guard in. And I was thinking we ought to have a uh, new ministry here and just be like the fellowship guard, and where we can go apprehend people who don't show up for church <laughs> and say offensive things. That's probably not a good idea. They send the temple guard in. They arrest all the apostles, all 12 of them, because there are 12 now. Judas took his own life, and then they chose one more. So they're back up to 12. <clears throat> and they get the ringleaders, and they're going to leave them in jail for the night, and they're gonna, then they're going to bring them out the next morning and try to kind of scare the Jesus out of them. Now, during the night, Luke tells us that uh, they threw them in the city jail, which is an interesting detail. And during the night, somebody comes and opens the door, and all the apostles walk out. And the next morning, the religious leaders and legal experts send to get these guys, and they're not there. And the next thing they hear, the apostles are back in the temple area preaching in the name of Jesus and talking about the resurrection. And now they're absolutely furious. So they get the temple guard together, and they go arrest these guys again. And Luke says the temple guard goes again to arrest them. And there are so many people gathered around them, Peter, Andrew, James, John, all the apostles. There are so many people gathered around them that now the temple guard are actually afraid. Acts says they feared what the, that the people would stone them. So they worked their way through the crowd, and apparently one of them went to Peter because he's like the leader, or at least the spokesman for the group. And they're like, Peter, we were sent here to arrest you. Could you please arrest yourself now? Because we're afraid to arrest you because we think we'll be stoned by the people. So Peter and the apostles stopped what they were doing as a group, and they accompanied the temple guard to go back to the Sanhedrin. They basically placed themselves under arrest. They turned themselves in in order to give an account for what they were doing. This is pretty cool stuff, and if you don't read your Bible, this is the kind of stuff you're, you're missing. And this is, here's where we're going to pick up the story. We're in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. We're going to put all this on the screen, and uh, hopefully we can follow along. Acts 5, 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, was that was the panel of experts in the law. They were the lawyers. To be questioned by the high priest. And the high priest is the man. I mean, he's the guy with the power. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. This is so interesting. They don't even want to say the name. 
They don't even want to say the name of Jesus. They just said not to teach in his name, in this man's name. And it's interesting that even in our culture, 2,000 years later, that name is still disruptive. Isn't it interesting that on the job or with your coworkers or with your friends or with some of your family over the holidays, you can talk about religion, you can talk about God, but as soon as Jesus comes up, it gets really uncomfortable. Keep reading. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. This is really important. This is two months after the resurrection. And the Sanhedrin is saying, look, the way you tell the story, you guys, you make it look like we're guilty of this man's death. And Peter's standing there thinking, well, that's because you are. I mean, who are we kidding? This wasn't 50 years ago. This was two months ago. We remember we were there. The reason it sounds like you're guilty is because you had him arrested. You had him tried in the middle of the night. You had him crucified. You are guilty. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed. There, I said it again. Sorry, but this isn't a secret. We're in Jerusalem. We were here whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Then here's the thing, don't miss this. This is what puts Christianity on a completely different category. Verse 32, we are witnesses. This isn't about something we heard. This isn't about something we just believed. This is about something we saw and experienced. We are witnesses of these things. His arrest, his trial, the flogging, the crucifixion, this thing about him rising from the dead. We don't just believe it. We don't just, didn't just hear about it. We didn't just read about it. Some, we were there. We were all around. We saw these things happen. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter's just going to preach every time he gets a chance. That's just all there is to it. He can't turn it off. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. <clears throat> and this shouldn't surprise us, this reaction, because they put the ringleader to death, Jesus. So they're thinking, okay, we got rid of one. Now if we can get rid of 12, then maybe this thing will finally go away. And then something really fascinating uh, happens. I love this twist in the story. Check this out, verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, <coughs> who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So he says, guys, before we decide to execute another group of people, because that's where you always run to, I have an idea. Ask them to step out of the room, and I want to share my idea with you. And then Gamaliel addresses the Sanhedrin, verse 19. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. So in other words, let's think about this. Verse 36. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. So he said, guys, think about it. Remember Thutis? Remember a while back? Remember Thutis? And they're like, oh, yeah, Thutis. Almost forgot about that guy. Yeah. Well, apparently Thutis somehow stirred up a group of people, had about 400 followers. He was going to do something, you know, revolutionary. And Rome is like, I don't think so. And they squashed him like a bug, and his followers went away, and the whole thing died. Verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. So Judas the Galilean lived at a time when the governor of Syria decided to do a census. And the purpose of the census was to figure out how to raise taxes and how to tax the people. That's usually the purpose of a census. Governments have to do this. They've always had to do this. They have to know how many people live in their country. This was a legitimate thing. But Judas the Galilean was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to participate in the census. It's evil. And he started a movement. In fact, the people who followed the Ga- Judas the Galilean were the first group known as zealots. 
And one of the followers of Judas the Galilean became one of Jesus' disciples. He's known as Simon the Zealot. So at this point, everyone in the room is tracking with Gamaliel, right? He too was killed, talking about uh, this Judas. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Remember, we didn't get involved. If, he, if we gotten involved and supported, the Judas, the, supported Judas the Galilean, the Rome would have gotten involved and squashed us. But if we had been against him, the people would have revolted. We're so politically perfect, so let's not get our hands bloody. Let's just wait. Verse 38. Therefore... The present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. In other words, if this is just a movement with people who have some radical agenda, it's going to fail because Rome won't let it succeed. See, in the first century, Rome wasn't against Christianity. Rome was against anything that would disrupt their power and their authority. I love this, 39, but if it's from God... You will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Think about that. Here's what he's saying. He says, the only thing that could overcome the power and control of Rome in this region of the world is God. If there's going to be a breakthrough movement, if there's going to be a momentum that rolls out of this part of the Roman Empire, it would take an act of God. I've never visited the modern city of Rome. I would love to. Maybe you have. But you know what there are more of? in Rome than any other city in the world? There are more crosses in Rome than any other city in the world. Crosses that don't represent crucifixion as a means of execution. Crosses that represent a single crucifixion that we only know about because of the resurrection. And there is no Roman Empire. But in the city of Rome, it's considered by the rest of the world to be the epicenter of Christianity. And Gamaliel was right. The only thing that could strong-arm Rome and create momentum bigger than Rome would be an act of God. So the Sanhedrin liked his reasoning, verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. It's like, oh, gee, great. Got off of the flogging. Flogging meant nothing to us until we saw the movie The Passion of the Christ a few years ago, right? Flogging was, oh, yeah, they were whipped. Bummer. That was a bad day for them. But flog, in many cases, was a death sentence. To be flogged was a cat of nine tails with pieces of stone and bone tied into the strips of leather, and a person was beaten until the skin was ripped off their back. So for several hours, these 12 apostles stood in line and watched as the temple guard flogged, permanently scarred the bodies of their closest friends, and they waited their turn for talking about something they had seen. If you're like me, you've wondered how you would respond to something like that. And the temptation is we read this verse and we want to quickly move on to the next part of the story. Like somehow this is just kind of a little parenthetical here. This was hours and hours listening to your closest friends screaming in agony, knowing that you're next because of something you said you saw and experienced. I don't know if that were us in this culture, in this time. I'm afraid the the thought of it, that it just would have been the end. I'm not sure that the message of Jesus would have ever moved beyond the first century. But listen to their response, verse 40. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Ready for this? And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. What? Wait, 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 wait. Did I miss something? You are permanently disfigured. 
you're probably going to get an infection in those wounds. I mean, life is hardly sterile. And that, you know, we're going to be in, you're going to be in pain for weeks and months. The rest of your life, people will see those scars, and they're going to think that you are somehow, you were a criminal at some point. They left rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for what? For the name. I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, I, I actually wrote that in my notes. I don't know what to say. We're so afraid that something negative is going to happen to us because we're Christians in America. And these first century followers of Jesus said, are you kidding to have lost something, to have given up something, to, have physic- to be physically scarred for the name of Jesus? It's the thing I'm most proud of. He gave his life for me. I gave some flesh for him. He gave his life for me. I gave up my reputation for him. He gave his life for me. I gave up my future for him. He gave his life for me. I gave up a relationship for him. That's how they thought. And here we live in the safest parts of the safest country in the known world, and we're afraid something's, someone's not going to like us. We're afraid we might get a C. We're afraid they won't stand with us on the sidelines at our kids' game if we bring up, you know. We're afraid we won't be invited to the holiday party. What happened to us? I'll tell you what, we are so extraordinarily blessed. Instead of being good stewards of the blessing, we've become worshipers of the blessing. We've shifted our focus from the blesser to the blessing. We've allowed it to strip us of our boldness. Oh, and I'm not an exception. This is so convicting. It's why we'd rather talk about anything else. I mean, it's December. Can't we just talk about baby in a manger, shepherds? Not today. Verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. This is after someone tended to their wounds and begun to heal. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I think what Luke meant to write in there was, wow. So what do you do with that? How do we respond to that? I don't want us to go out of there thinking, well, we're total failures. Oh, well, we'll go out and fail another day. What do we do? With this? It's at this point when I'm working on my message in my office, sitting at my desk, I'm thinking, oh, what do we say now after this? I could tell you modern-day stories of people who, some of them I've had the privilege to meet, maybe you have too, who have been imprisoned and tortured for their faith. I've met people like that, and I'll tell you, uh, the first time I met someone like that, a Romanian pastor who'd been imprisoned and tortured for 14 years it was a that was a turnaround moment for me i can tell you stories about people in other countries who've been ostracized and persecuted because they're christians or they were born to christian parents and we can read stories and read and look at videos of present day christians who are who are persecuted today there are lots of stories like that but they're so those stories are so far far away from our experience they're so far removed from us and from our circumstances that we go, you know, like, wow. And then we sing some songs and go to lunch and we complain that we've got to wait 10 minutes for our table. Instead, I want to do this. I want to suggest some boldness baby steps, okay? And then I want to tell you a story from my own experience. 
And if you listen to this and go, you know, Todd, compared to what the apostles went through, compared to what some Christians face today, I mean, this is nothing. I, I agree, I know. But it's just where we are. And, and we have to start somewhere because we're the church and we've been handed the church for our generation and it's up to us. And someday we're going to get old or sick or die in one way or another. We're going to hand the church off to the next generation and they will inherit it in the shape that we leave it in. So we better get this right. We better get bolder. So here are a few suggestions. Number one, bold is deciding to say something when it would be easier to say nothing at all. Sometimes that's what bold is in our culture. Deciding to say something about Jesus when it would be easier to say nothing at all. I'm not talking about arguing theology. I'm not talking about debating political positions that somehow you think are what every Christian believes. I'm talking about saying something about Jesus when it would be easier to say nothing at all. And you find yourself in those situations all the time, don't you? I mean, you know, it could, you, I could say something. It's like, uh, I'm not going to say anything. So let's just start there. Sometimes boldness is saying something about Jesus when it would be easier to say nothing at all. Number two, bold is taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Let me tell you what. Some of you uh, have bumper stickers on your cars and you wear wristbands, and some of you have tattoos. That's serious serious right there. Some of you wear T-shirts. Some of you play Christian radio in your workplace and you do this kind of stuff and you pray for boldness and you, you know what? You know what you're going to start noticing? When you start praying for boldness, you're going to start running into opportunities and for us, boldness is simply taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Simple as that. Oh, and number three, boldness sometimes is creating opportunities. Now, in your attempts to create opportunities, is it possible that some people might be offended? Yes, but you will not be flogged. You will not be taxed more. You will not be thrown out of the temple. But our threshold of pain and our threshold of fear and discomfort is so low I mean, thank God we live in a society where that's the case. I thank you, God. But we've got to be careful not to lose our boldness. Boldness is normal. That's how the church started. To fall short of that is really to betray the people who gave their lives so that we would have the good news of Jesus Christ. Aren't you grateful? I'm grateful for these first century Christians who gave it all. I'm grateful for Christians throughout the ages who have risked everything. I'm grateful that someone was bold with me. Aren't you glad that someone was bold with you at some point? Aren't you grateful someone kept giving you those CDs and giving you those books, stuff already highlighted, you know? Aren't you glad someone kept inviting you and kept inviting you and kept inviting you and kept inviting you? Then they, oh, then they got wise and invited your kids and that was cheating because your kids wanted to come back. And now you're here and it ruined your fishing and it ruined your golf game, it ruined your lawn care and it ruined your whole Sunday mornings now for the rest of your life. And you're glad because now you have peace and now you have joy and now you have purpose and now you have hope. So it's all good. Sometimes the reason 
we're not bold is, be, is that some of us have been Christians for so long that we've forgotten what it's like not to have peace with God. We've forgotten what it's like not to have joy. We've forgotten what it's like not to have purpose, not to have hope. Some of us, it's like all we've known, all, can, all we can remember is following Jesus. And some of us are just too busy because we've got important things to do. You know, we've got a job, unlike, you know, everybody else. But we've got a job, and some of us are just too insecure, and there's reasons for that, and i got my excuses. And some of us just get too distracted. And some of us have just focused on the wrong things. So consequently, we are not bold. But that can change. Because think about it. Boldness is normal. And someday, somebody will thank you, and they'll say, I know that was awkward. I know it was risky for you. I know I was a jerk about it at times, but thank you for being bold. Now, if you're here and and you would put yourself in that I'm not a Christian category, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is one of the things I can't stand about Christians. And I know why you think that. You're thinking, why can't we just keep it to ourselves? The great news for you is that most of us do. So you're safe. Most of the Christians in your life are like undercover Christians, you know, and you don't even know they're Christians, and they don't really want you to know unless, you know, it's perfect setting there, and you'll promise that you won't, like, frown at them. Most of us will, will never uh, let on that we're followers of Jesus. We're good moral Americans scared to death that might cost us something, Christians, so you're safe. There are some of us here who believe this verse, and you may have heard this verse, and you'll see it on your TVs this afternoon, John 3.16. We really believe that God loved the world. That's you. We really believe that he loved the world so much that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him won't perish. That means their life won't lose all its meaning and significance once they leave this life. It means that there's something beyond this. And you know that. Eternity's in your heart. God created you that way. And Jesus came to solve the mystery of eternity. And whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. Here's the thing about Christians and boldness. If we had kept the spirit of the first century church, even if you never became one of us, you would like us. You would be in awe of us. You would look at the love we have for each other and say, I don't know that I believe all the Jesus and resurrection part, but I'd like to have some of that because you'd be drawn to us. You would love Christians even if you never believed in Jesus. And if that hasn't been your experience with Christians in the church, that's our fault. And it's... If you're not a Christian, it's our hope that one day, maybe because of us or maybe even in spite of us, that you'll come to the realization that God loved you so much that he gave his only son so you could have eternal life. And if you're at that crossroads today and you're ready to take a step towards God today, maybe even become a follower of Jesus today, I hope you'll come talk with me in a few minutes when we dismiss here. Um, I'll make myself available right up here. In the meantime, for the rest of us, we're praying for boldness, aren't we? We're praying for boldness. God, enable me to speak your word with boldness. So we're going to learn to be bold. We're going to learn to maybe say something when it would be easier to say nothing at all. We're going to learn to take advantage of opportunities that are given to us, and we're going to actually intentionally create some opportunities because that's what we've been called to do. It's how the church made it out of the first century. In the words of Gamaliel, it was indeed an act of God. And God has been active ever since, and we are part of the story because we're part of this mega church. It's a big deal. I told you I'd tell you a story from my experience, and this isn't to make me the hero or even to make me the example. This is just a story of talking about Jesus when it would have been easier to say nothing at all. 
it's a story of taking advantage of an opportunity that was given to me. So a couple of weeks ago, I sat down with my good friend, Rick Parker, who all my best friends sit in the front row. And uh, we recorded uh, a conversation about our experience. And what you're going to see is the edited version. Um, the extended version is going to be online later today. Um, but we just had this conversation, and the camera happened to be rolling. So this is what I'm talking about. And this is doable. This is so doable. And I hope it's an encouragement to you. Watch this. So in 1999, I started out at the Y, full-time, after-school director. And you had already been there for about a year at that point. You'd done one year under your, had one year under your belt. So I start up, and we're doing our thing out on the playground. Kids are playing, we're doing stuff with them, engaged in activities. Then it gets to a point where the kids are doing things on their own, and you and I have a chance to step back, and we just get talking. And I knew at this point that you were a pastor. And at times that, was, that made me a little nervous because... I might swear or something. So we would talk about things. um, And I would, being the questioning person I am, I would always ask questions. um, Why do these things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, And I would, you know, I'd ask, and I wasn't asking him kind of to be rude or disrespectful towards God, but it was just my way of trying to find these things out. And I can remember having very deep conversations And I think these conversations have, those conversations really developed to where I am now. And I think that I will always be a seeker. I don't ever want to not be a seeker. It put me on the right road of where where God really was and how to really be in touch with God. Um, And I've even, what was really funny about that was because it was just two friends talking having a conversation. And I never felt as though I, would, I had you um, beating me down with the Bible. Like, you, you know, you really, do you know where you're going to go? And it wasn't that sort of thing. It was, I felt like it was two friends. I could ask questions. And I never felt as though the, that the answers were, um, they, they were the, the type of answers that you put thought into it. And it wasn't just out of the can. I felt like you really, if you didn't know, you didn't know. What was it for you like about the way that we could uh, have a conversation, say standing on the playground with 30 kids around, um, that made you feel comfortable enough to ask questions? For me, the key was our friendship. And that we had, I, I had a trust in you, we had a, a bond, we, we had formed a relationship as friends that I felt comfortable asking these things. The answers were genuine. They didn't seem like you had like a script that you were using. It was just two friends who were talking. It, it, it was just straight answers from two people who were becoming friends and, and had become friends. And I've had a chance to do the same thing with other people. And this person I talked about church, we talked about God, we talked about the relationship, um, 
to forget the rules, um, to think of God as just someone you can talk to. A lot of our conversations still go back to that subject of, of I still qu have questions and that I like to have answers to. And sometimes it's sometimes it's just because I have questions, and sometimes because it's there's a com it's comforting because you just want to be reassured and when you're fortunate enough to have the person who really put you on the right path is still you know part of your life it, you can it's it's nice to get the reassurance like okay well I remember him telling me this 10 years ago but is it still true and so to have that I think that because of our friendship that still becomes a focal point of a lot of times we get together. It might not start that way, but the conversations almost always lead that way with us. I really had to stop myself from getting up and giving you a hug because I, I really did like... Thanks. That's awesome. I'm so glad we get to share the story. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We your church we need your power in us we seek your kingdom first we hunger and we thirst refuse to waste our lives for you're our joy and prize to see the captive hearts released the hurt the sick the poor
Heal our streets and land.